This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. Well, the data seems to suggest that the U.S. housing market ended 2017 on a mixed footing. New home sales fell by 9.3% between November and December, according to the Census Bureau, and new home sales numbers for October and November were revised down markedly as well. But at the same time, existing home sales showed sustained improvements, and the median price of new homes in the United States reached an all-time high, rising 0.7% to $331,000 in the final measure for 2017. To help us make sense of those numbers, I'm joined now by Aaron Terrazas, Senior Economist at Zillow, and previously with the U.S. Treasury Department in Washington, D.C. Aaron, thanks for coming on to the program. Thank you for having me. So to kick us off, give us a quick recap of housing in 2017. How how did it go? So, I mean, if you look back at, at 2017, it really was the year that the labor market tightened, unemployment fell to generational lows. We know that these young adults who, for the past five or six years, had delayed all sorts of decisions, you know, getting married, having kids, buying a home, really were out in force on the housing market. We saw demand for kind of uh, for homes for among first-time homebuyers really was very strong throughout the year. Um, part of that was driven by the exceptionally tight inventory situation. So at the same time, all of these young homebuyers were out there looking for homes. Very few homes were, were hitting the market, and those that were hitting the market were moving very quickly. The flip side of this is that we did see a slowing in rents with all of these kind of people on the market looking to buy and eventually buying. Uh, you know, there was a little bit softer rental demand coupled with much stronger rental supply than we've seen in the past couple of years. Now, when your colleagues from Zillow have joined us uh, in previous programs, they've you know, made a point to mention that there really have been some constraints on the supply side of this market. The inventory just isn't there, and in some cases it's reaching you know, something that we could fairly say is sort of a crisis level. What is it that is holding us back in terms of new inventory? You know, that, that's absolutely right. If you look at the number of, of, you just talked about new homes, if you look at the number of new homes on the market, it's as low right now as it's ever been in the history of the series that goes back to 1962. So fewer homes on the market, and of course, the United States population is, is doubled since, since 1962. Um, so, you know, the, the inventory situation, it's, you know, if you look at the line, it's, it, it kind of it looks low, but you don't really get a sense of how low it is until you compare it. Um, to population growth and, and scale it by that measure. And, you know, there, there are a number of, of factors holding back new construction, we think. Obviously, costs ha- have gotten very high. Uh, land costs are very high, we know. The labor market is very tight, particularly for construction labor um, because of, you know, immigration policies and, and, and things that are happening in that world. Input costs. Uh, we saw tariffs kind of go on um, softwood lumber, a key input to building homes this year. That that raised the cost of um, uh, uh, of that key input to building new homes. Um, so so builders are are definitely struggling with these high costs. As a result, they're building to they're able to build to a relatively kind of high price point. They're really struggling to meet that kind of more middle or, or entry level demand. 
So when you describe sort of the high cost of land, um, you know, the scarcity there, we describe the high cost of labor, scarcity of skilled labor in that market, the potential for immigration policy to adversely impact the availability of, of, uh, of skilled labor, um, higher cost of materials. These don't sound like things where it's going to get easier for us in 2018. Um, is this a situation for which there isn't any sort of you know, uh, relief on the horizon? You know, we do think it's going to continue being a tough inventory situation into 2018. New home sales, we expect to increase um, a little bit, um, but certainly not to the level that that the, the market needs. Um, the flip side of, of these rising costs, you know, we do expect regulatory costs to, to come down a little bit in, in, in 2018. You know, a lot of cities, a lot of municipalities recognize the, the challenges that builders face and are doing what they can to, to ease regulatory the regulatory environment with tax reform, you know, builders who are kind of organized as a, as a C corporation are going to see lower corporate tax rates. Um, at the same time, you know, at the at the median, I know we're going to talk about tax reform in a little bit, so I don't want to kind of get ahead get ahead of the of the conversation. But you know, the the typical home buyer is going to see a boost in after tax income in, in 2018. That'll put a little bit more money in in their pocket, particularly for renters transitioning um, into buying their first home. So on the supply constraint side, we'll revisit this one more time. So we've got land, labor, materials um, as as real constraints at work here. What about the financing? Um, you know, with the sort of banks being in a different world than was the case in the pre-crisis period, uh, are, are there still meaningful constraints on the availability of financing to developers to either buy lots or to develop them? You know, you're right. Financing, um, kind of uh, acquisition, construction, development loans, uh, builders say, you know, are still difficult to get. But I think there is a divergence on that financing point. The, the small kind of local builders are having a very difficult time getting those those AC and D loans. Um, I think the larger national builders um, aren't having that that difficult time with financing. Capital markets have have been fairly liquid. Um, so so there is that divergence between kind of the, the different types of, of builders. Um, and, and I mean to add to that financing point, you know, we do have to remember that the the builder population that survived the, the bust a decade ago survived because they were a little bit more cautious. They were the less risk averse uh, or a little more risk averse among their colleagues. So, so it's natural that, you know, they're not taking the, the risks that, you know, um, to, to, to rapidly, rapidly ramp up demand. Um, they saw their colleagues who did that a decade ago just get crushed. Um, so there is kind of that, that memory, I think, in, in the minds of many builders as well. Sure. I think anyone who lived through the financial crisis, it's not one that we will soon forget. Um, certainly feeling scathed myself. When we look at that, that latest new home sales price point, 331400 an all-time high uh, for, for new home sales prices, uh, that seems... Uh, really rich. Um, how much of this is that you know we've got you know really high prices in San Francisco, San Jose, New York, Seattle that are dragging uh, th- this average higher, and how much of it is that we've really seen a deterioration in new home affordability across the country? You know, so when we're talking about new home construction, you know, certainly some of that happens in in, in San Francisco and and particularly kind of outlying exurbs of San Francisco, but the bulk of new home construction does still happen in, in affordable communities, places like Dallas and Atlanta and, and Charlotte and Raleigh um, and Vegas. Um, you know, so, so, you know, I think the, the increase in prices that we're seeing on the new construction side are driven, A, by builder costs, um, and, and B, um, 
you know, the fact that there's just so much demand in, in this market. So, so even in those communities, um, you know, where builders are able to build, um, they are seeing people come in the door immediately. If you look, you know, at the number of the, the, the kind of the sales report that came out yesterday, um, the, the bulk of home sales and the bulk of particularly inventory on the market came from uh, new homes that are still under construction. That's the kind of inventory that, that builders are putting out there um, and a reflection that, you know, these homes are going before, before six are in the ground. One of the arguments that I have on an ongoing basis, let's say it's a conversation or a dialogue with my colleagues on the multifamily side of all of this, is whether or not sort of the dynamic at work and the bias uh, between owning and renting, you know, how much of this is, you know, the strength of preferences that people want to be renters and don't want to be owners, and how much of it is that, um, you know, it's just, it's hard to become an owner. Uh, Given all that you've described, is it fair to say that there are folks out there that all things being equal, you know, want to become homeowners, but it's just, it, you know, in these conditions, it's tough to be a first-time home buyer. You know, this debate about kind of whether young adults today, the millennial generation, wants to be renters or homeowners is something I feel like we've had for, for, for three, four or five years now. And, um, you know, the reality is, there are, I, I do agree. You know, I think that there is this bulk of, of young adults who, who would like to become homeowners, but is, is having a, a difficult time transitioning, finding a home, finding the, the, the financing um, to, to make that jump. There, are all, there have always been a, a certain population of preference renters, renters who, who choose to do so, um, you know, because that's the, the lifestyle they want to live. But particularly kind of young adults who have been renting for, you know, since, since the bust, they're getting to, millennials are getting to the age where they're forming families are are interested in looking at school districts um, and you know those those are are, are big factors um, in in homeownership communities sure I mean as soon as you have a kid your utility function is going to change right and so the kinds Absolutely. of amenities you value are not going to be the same as they are when you're sort of right. single and right out of college or, or or grad school if you're just joining us you're listening to the real estate hour on business radio powered by the Wharton School I'm your host Sam Chandon and my guest is Aaron Terrazas senior economist at Zillow previously with the Treasury Department we're talking a little bit about housing trends affordability in particular in uh, 2017 2018 Aaron I, I want to talk about tax Taxes, uh, tax reform. I guess you know the thing that was most surprising for me was, and perhaps not surprising, uh, but telling was that some of the things that a couple of years ago we would have assumed were sacred cows, untouchable, um, in terms of policy. Uh, we're really on the table. And, you know, the first of these is uh, the adjustment to the cap on the mortgage interest deduction. You know, I, I don't believe that the drop from a million to 750000 for the size of that mortgage is something that sort of really upends the entire market. But, but the fact that there was any change at all, uh, you know, it seems, you know, is probably the, 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 the sort of more telling thing for me. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right that for, for so long, um, kind of, we've we've had this Kind of belief that um, you know the mortgage interest section was untouchable in, in tax reform, um, and it, it really is an example of um, kind of you know I, where kind of I, I feel like the econometric evidence ha- has not really resonated um, in the general conversation because overwhelmingly the econometric evidence on the mortgage interest section suggests that it doesn't really shift you know owner renters into buyers. It, it does allow buyers to buy more. Um, but um, but if we're you know the the aim is to encourage people to become homeowners for the first time, the mortgage interest deduction doesn't really get us there. Um, and, and so you know 
for for years, I think a lot a lot of economists would agree. It's surprising that um, that data and that evidence has not resonated more with policymakers. All right. So, in terms of that adjustment down, uh, again, I, I think we're probably you know as with other economists on the same page about this. Uh, what's the final word on you know for the for the first time home buyer? Does this make a difference? I, I think if you're talking about the first time home buyer nationwide, you know even the the median buyer nationwide. The, the reforms that kind of the, the tax reforms that were enacted in December are going to boost after tax income. Um, you know, for your typical American buyer, they're not, as they're looking for a home, they're not going out to calculate kind of what, is, what are going to be the tax implications. They're, they're thinking about buying because big life changes are happening, as we talked about. They're having, they're having starting a family. They're getting a new job and moving to a different city. You know, or, you know, or their children have, you know, not, not for some hires, but their children have left the, the house and they're, and they're ready to downsize. People buy homes at, at the median because of big life decisions. Now, you know, certainly more financially savvy buyers. And I think it's important to recognize that median buyers, perhaps in high-priced, high-cost markets, if you're a median buyer in the San Francisco Bay Area market, you probably are counting on, on kind of every extra cent you can get by any means to, to, to stretch and afford a home. Um, so for those buyers, I think they are going to be affected a little bit. So I'm based in New York. We're both on coasts. Um, I think the biggest pain point for me in all of this is the loss of my uh, state and local tax deduction uh, for big coastal markets, particularly places like New York, where we're not terribly tax efficient. Um, is, is this meaningful in terms of outcomes for the housing market? I, I, I agree. I think the, the, the elimination of the SALT deduction or the, the cap on, you know, essentially the $10,000 cap on the SALT deduction, I think is much more important um, than the elimination um, or the, the limits on the mortgage interest deduction. Um, I, I do think this is going to be a big challenge for the pricey coastal markets, the Los Angeleses and, and, and New Yorks and, and New Jerseys and, and California Bay areas of the world, um, you know, particularly for middle-income households who, who don't have other avenues um, to, to find deductions, um, this is going to hurt. Yeah, and it's. I think there is a sort of a, a large group of people, homeowners, where um, you're not rich, uh, but right. you are blowing through that ten thousand dollar cap. Oh, easily, and I mean, I, you know, I think um, you know, New York doesn't benefit from the same property tax system that California does, and um, you can certainly imagine um, people getting a lot more sensitive to, to property tax assessments. Um, particularly in markets that have been growing very quickly over the past couple of years. Yeah. So, is there any sense with something like Prop 13, where you know, sort of you, the property tax gets reset when you sell the asset, um, potentially sort of a very large jump in the property tax? Uh, you know, at, at that particular point, that this might sort of discourage uh, um, sort of you know, home sales overall. You're just less inclined to move to buy a new property uh, to sell the one that you've got if your current taxes are low, because you'll inevitably be moving into some of the taxes are high. Um, does this just discourage liquidity in the market? I, I think that's true, particularly in, in California, because of, you know, it almost exacerbates the effect of, of Prop 13. And on top of that, don't forget, with the mortgage interest deduction, um, people who took out a mortgage before December 15th, I believe, December 15th, 2017, um, are grandfathered in to the previous um, kind of mortgage interest deduction cap, so they still can take up to um, a million dollars in um, uh, interest on uh, interest on a million dollars in a loan. Um, so I think 
combined, you know, those two are going to um, exacerbate the inventory situation in a market like California. I'm going to ask you about Amazon uh, itching to do it. But the um, but before we go there, uh, one last quick question about general market conditions. Uh, tenure treasuries are at their highest level since 2014. Uh, we haven't seen you know as you know, significant an increase in, in the you know long term mortgage rate. But right. you know on the short end of the yield curve, we're expecting three increases in 2018 for the Fed funds target. Any concerns about you know where we're going with borrowing costs in 2018 and how that could impact the market? I think borrowing costs are going to increase. I, I'm not concerned about it. Um, you, you're right that you know 10-year treasuries are, are as you said, the highest that they've been in almost four years. The 30-year fixed mortgage rate, um, when I looked most recently on Wednesday, kind of was uh, as a high, at its highest point since, since April, uh, April or March 2017. So, so it hasn't increased quite as much. Um, and, and I do think there is there is upward pressure on 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 long-term debt rates, um, particularly if you think about. Um, the fiscal environment right now, we, we just had tax reform, um, which increases the, the federal deficit um, over the coming years. Entitlement reform never materialized like many expected it would. That's going to increase demand for long-term debt. Um, so Uncle Sam is going to be competing with um, American homebuyers for, for those long-term loans. That's going to push interest rates up. That all said, you know, I think there is still room um, for you know, if interest rates go up 50, 75 basis points, going to eat in a little bit to what people can afford, but it's not going to, not going to um, shift the decision to, to, to buy, um, particularly um, in a tight labor market where, where wages are growing um, and after tax income has increased. Sure. So let's shift gears. Uh, for, for urban people like you and me, high drama you know, in our space the last couple of months with Amazon looking for HQ2. Uh, tell us a little bit about what HQ2 is. Sure. So, I mean, I'm sure as, as many of, of your listeners know, um, in past this past fall, Amazon, um, which over the past decade has kind of uh, emerged from a tiny startup bookseller to the nation's premier retailer, um, announced that they were searching for a second um, headquarters, uh, a headquarters that would be equal to their current Seattle headquarters. Um, they uh, announced that they were looking for, uh, you know, a city with over a million population, kind of major international transit access, a, 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 a talent pool, um, and hundreds of cities applied. Last week, we found out that 20 kind of cities um, made the cut as finalists, um, and um, and you know these cities are are, are now competing to, to see who will get and these estimated 50,000 jobs over the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, well, I suppose whichever mayor is able to get this will be perceived as sort of, you know, for a very long time, a town hero. Um, but when I'm looking well, at it, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's another question of whether he or she actually is doing something good for the town. Um, but when I'm looking at this list of 20, what's the common thread here? I mean, you know, Boston, New York, Toronto, D.C., those might be obvious ones. Uh, but we've also got Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we've got Atlanta. We've got Newark, New Jersey. What is the what's the common here, what is Amazon looking for? You know, beyond beyond the criteria that they announced in, in their um, call for proposals, I, I'm not sure if there is a common thread. You know, sure they all have are, are relatively big cities, but you, there is a wide diversity of places. Places like Los Angeles and Boston, um, and DC and, and Newark. You know, kind of part of the New York metro. Some of the the priciest housing markets in in the country. Um, Toronto is not a cheap place. Um, uh, at the same time, you've got communities 
that are, you know, you mentioned Cleveland, um, places like Atlanta and, um, and Denver and Austin and Dallas, kind of more affordable communities as well. So from a housing market perspective, it really is a, a, the full spectrum. Yeah, and I mean, some of what's got to matter here also has to be sort of access to sort of a solid, uncongested, uh, you know, transportation hub system, uh, you know, particularly the airports, uh, the the supply of skilled labor, which again is going to be impacted by the price of housing. Are, are those the main things that they're looking for, or is this really just a talent show to see who can put the best possible offer on the table? You know, I, I I don't know. I'm not I'm not in in Amazon, and I, I don't kind of know exactly what they're prioritizing. You know, I I do know as we've done a number of studies on how Amazon has affected and changed the the Seattle housing market over over the period of its growth. I I do think it's important that they prioritize um, a place that has elastic housing supply because you know for any metro, you know, you know accommodating 50,000 people of growth is, is not easy. Growth, you know both creates enormous opportunities and enormous challenges um, for, for cities to accommodate. Um, so I, I do hope that, you know, these cities are, um, are, are a little bit clear-eyed about, you know, what's to come. So you mentioned sort of the analysis of Seattle, and maybe we can dig in on that for a moment. It's probably instructive for folks in other cities that are, you know, um, vying uh, very aggressively to to win uh, HQ2. What has been the impact of, you know, a company like Amazon in, in, in Seattle? Sure. So, I mean, you, you talk about the mayors vying it for it and, and kind of the, the mayor who at the time that Amazon moved its, its headquarters, much smaller company at that time from Bellevue on the east side near Microsoft to kind of the neighborhood of South Lake Union, um, which is a formerly industrial neighborhood just north of downtown. It's very central, um, but also kind of, you know, going through this transformation from, from warehouses and auto body shops to high rises and coffee bars. Um, and if you look at what's happened over the past five or six years, um, you know, the, the neighborhoods, well, the city, home values in the city of Seattle have, have doubled. Rents have gone up by 50%. If you look at the parts of the city where people who work in South Lake Union tend to live, the, those neighborhoods that are most popular with, um, with the people who work in, in and around Amazon, um, rents have gone up twice as fast in, in those neighborhoods as in compared to the neighborhoods where, that are less popular for, for those types of workers. Um, that said, there's, there's a lot of other things happening in, in, in Seattle. You know, we estimate that the growth and the jobs boom in that neighborhood in South Lake Union really only accounts for about a fifth of the regions of Seattle Metro's rent increases over the past five years. So there are certainly other companies coming in as well. Um, it's not just Amazon, you know, adjacent to Amazon now. There's a big uh, kind of Google office. There's a Facebook office. Companies are attracted by talent, and, and Amazon, without a doubt, attracts um, kind of um, high-skilled tech talent. Um, at the same time, you know, Seattle is a very supply-constrained environment. You know, we talked about how, how costly it is to build, how expensive it is to build, um, and the kind of uh, supply has certainly not kept pace with, with growth in Seattle, and that's another reason we've seen, seen rent growth. Many of the cities on the list, I, I, I think supply could keep pace, you know, or, or can be closer to keeping pace with, with that level of growth. So we have just about one minute left. Is there a possibility then that you know, with the opening of HQ2, wherever it ends up being, you know, some of that pressure comes off of Seattle and uh, you know, maybe, maybe we see a little bit of relief in the city? You know, I, I think that is kind of, you know, uh, almost an unspoken fear among the city's uh, kind of um, political and, and, and business leaders. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not so sure. I, I, I think there 
you know, as I said, Amazon's not the only company growing here. There are a lot of other companies. Um, I would note, however, that over the past three months, um, as Amazon has kind of slowed its hiring, um, uh, Seattle has dropped out of the top place in, in rent appreciation rankings nationwide. Aaron, thank you so much for coming onto the program. I hope you'll join us again. Well, happy to. Thank you so much. That was Aaron Terrazas, senior economist at Zillow, previously with the Treasury Department in Washington. Thanks uh, both to Aaron and my first guest today, PwC's Tim Bodner. That is all the time that we have for today, but our show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about the Real Estate Hour and our other shows and hosts on the SiriusXM website at SiriusXM.com slash business radio. If you have a question for us, you can write to our email address, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111, at Real Estate on SXM, and at Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour is produced by Patty Hall, who is also the program director here at Business Radio. Danielle Bruno has run of the house on our soundboard. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks again for joining us. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.